Kia ora tato. Um, lovely to see you all here. Uh, 100 years ago, New Zealand went through one of the largest, uh, most disruptive and most violent strikes in its history and Wellington was the storm centre of the violence that took place, probably the nearest we've come to a Pākehā civil war. There were about 14,000 workers involved in the strike, although some estimates say 16,000. Um, this is in the days when we had a population of about a million. And out of that million, about 72,000 were unionised workers. So your 14 to 16,000 was around 20% of the country's unionists. And according to the yearbook I looked at, there were about 300,000 in the workforce at that time, altogether 300,000 workers. The main unions involved were affiliated to what was known as the United Federation of Labour, the Red Feds. Um, the, the biggest unions involved initially were the miners and the watersiders. Later on, the seamen also became involved. Uh, sort of a bit complicated with them. They were had pulled out of the arbitration system, as had most of the Red Fed unions. But for their own reasons, the seamen had not joined the Federation. Um, the majority of unionists at that time were actually involved still in the arbitration system. But the militant unionists involved in the Red Feds uh, had a lot of the power going on at that time. The arbitrationists generally did not become involved with the strike, although that was a bit different in Auckland where there was a brief general strike partway through this, this strike itself. While it's referred to as the Great Strike of 1913, it was in fact a series of strikes beginning 18th of October when a small group of shipwrights went out in Wellington soon and then a parallel strike over separate issues started at Huntley. The last strikers to go back were in mid-January 1914 when the Black Ball miners returned to work. So most port towns and nearly all the coal mining settlements of the country were involved. It wasn't quite North Cape to the Bluff because the Bluff Port Union were arbitrationists and kept working, but it was from Kawakawa uh, in Northland to Nightcaps in Southland, as the Nightcap miners were all out. Um, and, and, but while the initial strikes were over issues of wages and conditions, victimisation and such like issues, the real issue was a power struggle between, on the one hand, militant organised unions, militant organised labour, and on the other hand, the militant organised unions of the employers, the Employer Feder Employers Federation, and of the farmers, the Farmers Union. And they were backed by an activist government, the reform government of William Massey, who was prepared to use force to break the power of militant unions. The strike exposed the fault lines within the society of the time, moderate unionists versus militant unionists, workers versus bosses, rural versus urban. And it's also of interest to us because it involved a lot of characters who had some important roles in New Zealand society later on. I mean, for me, of course, part of the interest is Pat Hickey's involvement. He'd been one of the, the pioneers of the Red Fed movement. But you also have Bob Semple, uh, Peter Fraser, Paddy Webb, and in Auckland, Michael Joseph Savage, all of whom, of course, became um, leaders of the Labour government in 1935. Um, strike also had a huge impact on the rural part of New Zealand because, of course, the um, special constables were largely recruited from there. 
Massey's Cossacks, as the strikers called them. And they involve some interesting characters as well. Um, Tiny Bernard Freiburg was one of them. He, of course, later on had Peter Fraser as his boss in the Second World War. Um, John Cullen, the leader, at, well, he wasn't actually, Cullen wasn't a uh, Massey's Cossack. He was commissioner of police. Uh, he'd already smashed the Waihee strike and would later go and um, shoot up Maunga Pahatu when he was arresting Rua Kanana. Uh, Elsden Best was a, a, um, one of the Massey's Cossacks. He rode around Wellington in his cowboy gear that he'd collected years ago when he was travelling through the United States, which apparently smelled of mothballs because he didn't often get a chance to ride around wearing it. Um, the strike was largely a Pākehā affair. There were some Māori involved as strike breakers and as um, special constables, but there was also a very interesting inc incident when the um, Ngāti Tūwharetoa Ariki Te Heuhau and a uh, chap called, from Naitahu called Tuiti MacDonald, who later became Southern Māori MP, when they they were in Wellington for a big conference, the government, and they spoke at in fourth, and on the 4th of December at the Olympia Skating Rink in Vivian Street, which was one of the strike meeting sites, and they actually spoke in favour of the strike, which is rather interesting. They may have had their own political reasons going on in there as well. So a little bit of background. Um, 1890... Uh, the was the destruction, the defeat of the unions who'd been involved in the 1890 strike, uh, which was the miners, the watersiders, the seamen. Unions, unions were weakened for a long period afterwards, but with the Liberal government voted in, William Pember Reeves introduced the Industrial Conciliation and Arbitration Act, 1894, and this made that unions registered under that act and employers, when they met uh, under the, before the, con the conciliation boards or the arbitration court, the decisions made were legally binding, and those involved in these activities, uh, the registered unions, could not go on strike. The bosses could not do lockouts. The unions were initially, so those were made illegal, but only, by the way, for registered unions. Unions initially thought this was great. They were too weak to strike. They were more afraid of lockouts, and the law for much of the period was working in their favour. From 1894 to 1906, there were no major strikes in New Zealand, and we were known internationally as uh, the social laboratory of the world and the workers' paradise. However, by 1906, disillusionment was setting in, as um, no longer were the, the court's decisions on pay, keeping uh, pace with inflation, Young radicals emerged who had not experienced the 1890 strike and messages of revolutionary industrial unionism were being brought to New Zealand from places such as North America by people such as Pat Hickey, who'd been involved with the Western Federation of Miners, who were, um, who'd been involved in a lot of strikes that involved shooting between them and the employers and so on. That was the way industrial relations was going in the States. People like Hickey, people like H.M. Fitzgerald from Canada bringing in very radical messages and a, a significant minority in the union movement, especially concentrated in the coal mines, were listening to this and thinking that workers, that socialism was inevitable, that revolutionary industrial unionism was the way to go, organising unions around the industry, say around mining, rather than splitting up into little sectional unions of carpenters, miners, truckers, etc. So... From 
One of the things resulting from this was the black ball strike. A uh, successful strike, despite being illegal. The unions involved, miners' unions set up afterwards the New Zealand Federation of Miners, dedicated to breaking away from the arbitration system, uniting workers together. And new leaders came to the fore, Semple, Hickey, Webb, these people who became leaders in the Red Fed movement. While the moderate unionists stayed aloof from this, they stayed within the arbitration system, but a lot of unions in very significant economic positions started getting involved. The Federation expanded to being the Federation of Labour in 1910, the New Zealand Federation of Labour, the Red Feds. And lots of unions were pulling out of the arbitration system, strikes were happening and being successful, employers were very worried by this and so were the farmers. They strengthened their own unions, the Employers Federation and the Farmers Union. And the Employers Federation set up a fund called to combat socialism, syndicalism and anarchism. And one of the chief people behind this was the secretary of the Employers Federation, William Pryor, one of the forgotten men in our history, but one of the most important at this time. He was dedicated to the destruction of the militant unions. Um, in 1912, the employers had developed a new tactic, and that was to encourage arbitration unions in jobs where there was already a Red Fed union that had pulled away from the arbitration system. Once an arbitration union was set up in the same workplace, if that union came to an agreement with the employers in the arbitration court, it applied to all workers in that particular occupation, no matter what union they belonged to. So it was a great way to undermine the power of the Red Fed unions. And this was the cause of the Waihee strike, when a small group of engine drivers, not even the majority of engine drivers at Waihee, split away from the Waihee trade union that, that had most of the mine workers in it, set up their own engine drivers union. The Waihee union refused to work with them. Strike resulted. Once Massey's government were in, they poured the police into Waihee. Strike breakers poured in, uh, lots, about 67 miners imprisoned, great deal of violence. Frederick George Evans was killed, uh, the Waihee Union was smashed, and the strikers' families driven out of town. This uh, could only have happened since uh, William Ferguson Massey had become the Prime Minister, because his government, unlike the Liberals before them under Joe Ward, who had gone with a hands-off policy just let the courts sort things out. Massey favoured direct intervention, sending in the police, changing the law if necessary, all these kinds of things. And the labour movement itself was in a state of shock. Um, the extreme left, as it might have been called, the industrial workers of the world based in the northern part of the North Island, they thought the Federation had been too soft and it was too bureaucratic, too much into parliamentary socialism, etc. So you had this one hand, these guys who were just critical because they saw it as being uh, not being left-wing enough. But the moderate unions, the arbitrationists who had kept aloof from the Waihee strike, seeing it as an inter-union business, they were worried by the power the state had demonstrated and they held a couple of unity conferences between the so-called militants and moderates and from that came a new organisation, the United Federation of Labour, the Red Fed 2, you might call it, which um, included the old Red Fed unions, but some of the moderates. But this new expanded union really scared the employers. So 
you have employers and farmers deeply worried by the new organisation and William Pryor doing his best to build up the um, employers fund and various people wanting on both sides wanting a scrap to sort out the um, aftermath of Waihi. Um, some among the unionists believing the socialist millennium was just around the corner and needed to be brought in, although the idea of revolution then didn't necessarily mean storming the barricades, it basically meant a complete overthrow of the economic system, which could happen, they believe, by peaceful means, by a combination of industrial and political action. But the Red Fed leaders, um, Tom Young, who was the uh, president and also president of the Federated Seamen's Union, even though the seamen weren't part of the Red Feds. He was known as a moderate. His um, two other paid officials, Pat Hickey, who was Secretary Treasurer, and Bob Semple, who was organiser, they were legendary fire-breathing radicals. But all of them were quite pragmatic about this. They thought that this period when the strike actually occurred was a very bad time to strike. It was, it was the slack season between the calving and lambing and so on. The shearing was only just beginning. Harvest and slaughtering season hadn't even started. So apart from the dairy farmers, all the other farmers could get away, and a lot of the dairy farmers actually could as well. So they were able to become special constables, but it also meant that, of course, it wasn't a big exporting time. So the watersiders unions didn't have the same amount of economic clout at that point. And being... Uh, weather getting warmer, freezing works not operating as much, etc. Coal wasn't so much in demand, so it wasn't such a great time for a coal strike. But the Red Fed leaders were not really the real leaders of the strike. It very much came from the rank and file. And the two unions from which it really came were the miners and the watersiders. And when you look at these two jobs, they're both dirty, dangerous jobs both jobs where you strongly relied on the people you're working with, both jobs where the workers involved set a great deal of store by their own skill and didn't really trust their bosses, thought that the best way to run the, run the job was on the job. So, and both ones with strong unions. And a key factor in their attitude was this idea of manhood, which of course was very strong at this time, the age of Captain Scott and heroic men uh, um, letting the woman and children go on the, on the lifeboats of the Titanic and so on. Well, the socialists, while they were critical of militarism and imperialism, had similar views on manhood, the ability to feed fa their family, the ability to control your own fate, to be treated with respect on the job and to do the right thing by your comrades. Whereas the miners and morphies were regarded by the capitalist press as lazy, spoilt workers who were always on strike. And this was a very common attitude among a lot of the public. The Red Feds and other socialists were actually aware that they needed their own media because the um, papers of the day, the Dominion, surprise, surprise, and others were uh, very pro-capitalist. So they had their own newspaper going, the Maori Land Worker. Um, there were also some, which was a broad left newspaper with a range of views from anarchism through to parliamentary socialism. There were also um, some even more militant papers, the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, the Wobblies, had their own paper, the Industrial Unionist. A chap called Harry Scott Bennett had the Social Democrat. But the most, um, now the Maryland Worker had a distribution of about 10,000, but the most widely distributed 
pro-strike newspaper during the strike was the New Zealand Truth, uh, which had, I think, a, a um, circulation of about 40,000 at that time. Red can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, and at that time, far from being the right-wing racist scandal sheet it was in my youth, it was a left-wing racist scandal sheet. <laughs> Strongly in favour of the strike. So, where are we? The Labour press was in fact symptomatic of a broad stream of a strong radical culture in that time. There was a very vibrant working class culture. The radical stream within it was a minority stream but a very important one. And it was at its strongest in Wellington, Auckland and the West Coast, which were of course the areas where the strike was at, it had its greatest sites of struggle. And little towns like Runanga and Blackpool, little mining towns, the unions basically just ran the town, but even places like Fielding, which had some militant flax workers up there, had its own socialist hall. And in Wellington there were socialist choirs, there was a socialist Sunday school for the kids, there were regularly well-attended Sunday meetings on um, socialist and related topics. Um, Philip Josephs, a Latvian Jewish tailor, had an anarchist bookshop in Willis Street, and they, they'd set up his own anarchist, well, he had facilitated an anarchist group called the Freedom Group set up that very year. And the broader labour culture itself was very strong. Thousands of people attended Labour Day events, union picnics. Um, the Labour Day picnic at Days Bay regularly had to five to 10,000 people there where they were entertained from 1912 when it was founded by the Waterside Workers Band. Lots of unions had brass bands and the theme music for the strike was provided by these brass bands who went out on the marches and so on. And people in those days, the protesting was a social activity. You dressed up, you put on your Sunday best, got the kids out in the pram and went off to protest against capitalism. <laughs> so, the strike began with two simultaneous strikes. One in Huntley, which is a miners' strike. That broke out over the dismissal of 16 union members. During the Waihee strike, Huntley had had an arbitrationist union imposed on them, but during the next year, the Red Feds had retaken that union, retaken control of it. The Taupiri Coal Company sacked 16 workers, all of them prominent socialists, three of them members of the union exec. The uh, 19th of October, the union called strike until these guys were reinstated. They were out until January 1914, but Huntley did not see any major scenes of disruption. The police, at the start of the strike, under, uh, I think he was the inspector, A.J. Mitchell, who was in the head of the Auckland district that time, adopted a very conciliatory approach, which worked well throughout, although Mitchell himself was dismissed very early on in the strike, and the theory went that Cullen, the police commissioner, had got rid of him because he was too soft. The place where there was big trouble, though, was here. And the strike here broke out over a very small dispute by, uh, I've read 35, somewhere else they say 47 shipwrights, um, who had good relations with their employer, the Union Steamship Company, until 1913. Then a dispute broke out over uh, travel time and then pay and conditions. The shipwrights pulled out of the arbitration system, affiliated themselves to Watersiders Union, and on 18th of October went on strike. The Watersiders, the bigger union, held a stop work meeting to discuss this. Um, 
when they came back from the stop work meeting on the 22nd of October, their places on the boats had been taken by other workers. And in a casualised labour force, which the um, watersiders were, this was a very big issue. This was a job where you might be working really hard for three days and then have no work for weeks. So once you'd got on a job, you were very annoyed if someone else got given it. So they called another meeting, went on strike. The employers immediately organised a strike committee the same day and came out with their conditions, which were they would only take the ongoing agreement no longer held, they would only take the workers back on the boats if they either joined the arbitration system or paid a very large strike bond. So strike began. The unions uh, a couple of weeks in said they would pay the bond, but the employer said, nah, you've got to join the arbitration system, that's it. So you had a conflict between unionists who wanted to retain their position as a powerful union, strong part of a bigger organisation, the Federation of Labour, and able to strike or negotiate directly against employers who weren't so much wanting to reduce, at that point, their wages or conditions, but wanted a union that they could keep under control through the arbitration system. And Pryor, William Pryor, the Secretary of the Employers <coughs> Association, who was also Secretary of the Mine Owners Association, Secretary of the Ship Owners, Owners Association, was also Secretary of the Employers, Farmers and Citizens Defence Committee in Wellington. And he, like many of those involved in it, including Fletcher, the head of the Wellington Harbour Board, saw it as a fight to the death with the militant unions. They wanted to break their power. And in the minutes of the Wellington Ship Owners Defence Committee, there is a little bit where they say one of the strike aims which they agreed with with the Auckland Defence Committee was the destruction of the United Federation of Labour. So they were quite plain about what they wanted to do. So within a week, strikes are broken out all over the country. First, the watersiders uh, went out. Uh, and so the only ports operating within a few weeks were Napier, Gisborne, Whanganui, Timaru and Bluff which all had arbitrationist unions, not in the Red Federation, and Hokitika, which doesn't seem to have had a union at all that time. There was a very significant bit in Auckland. The watersiders went out there. Within a couple of weeks, on the 8th November, the special constables, in a swift surprise operation, took the wharves, which led to a general strike in Auckland for one and a half weeks, when between five to 10,000 workers were out, which included quite a few of the arbitration unions. The general strike collapsed after about a week and a half, but the wharfies, the seamen and the drivers stayed out for quite a period afterwards. The strike was relatively quiet in Christchurch and Dunedin. Uh, Littleton had another one of these lightning raids by the um, specials and a similar thing taking over the wharves. There was a very interesting uh, support strike in Littleton though, where the newsboys, who were mainly children of the um, Strikers went out on strike as well. They had their own strike committee, uh, strike pay and picketing system, so they were obviously fast learners. Um, the coal mine unions went out around the country. Um, pits from Hikarangi near Kawakawa to nightcaps in Southland ceased work. The only mines that kept going were a few small mines in Otago, including Kaitangata. And um, even Kaitangata contributed money to the strike fund. And on the west coast, the wharfies and the miners had control of the Grey Valley and the Buller for about a month, including Westport and Greymouth. And this was the bit where the mayor sent his uh, telegram wanting the 20 constables in the small warship. Um, 
the authorities were afraid to enrol specials on the West Coast. And in fact, the West Coast, you had the opposite situation of most of the rest of the country. The people coming in from the rural areas to take control of the city were not Massey's Cossacks, but miners from the small towns, from Denniston, from Blackball, from Runanga, and they were pretty much running the show for a period of time. It is notable that the gold mines didn't go on strike. Waihi, one of the largest gold mines, was still under the control of the scabs or arbitrationists who'd won the 1912 strike, and mines such as Waiuta and Reefton supported the strike but felt it'd be more valuable to keep working and contribute to the strike fund than to go on strike themselves. So, Wellington. Um, Wellington, we sort of learned quite a bit about this through researching stuff for our walks. And this significant thing in many ways of the strike in the early days here was a fight over space. So Post Office Square was a major centre for it. Here's where they had the big meetings here. Hickey, Young, um, Tom Barker of the Wobblies, Peter Fraser of the Social Democrat Party, all these radical characters, the various um, waterfront union leaders and people from out of town came and spoke. They were, they were mostly men, but there were a few women who spoke there. Um, Selena Anderson, a, a, a unionist from Australia who was living in New Zealand for a few years. Um, Jane Donaldson, who was a, a prominent figure in the Housewives Union, they spoke to crowds here. But the square was almost like your sort of trench warfare situation. And on one side, you had the Harbour Board offices. On the other side, you had the offices of the um, Waterfront Union. They directly look at each other across the square and up the road was the uh, Union Steamship Company where the Defence Committee of the Employers held their meetings. Right near that was a thing called the Waiting Room, which is where the uh, wharfies went to get their work when work was actually going. And that was where they held the big union meetings. For the first few weeks of the strike, they still had control of that. It belonged to the Harbour Board, though they blocked it. And from <coughs> about the second week of the strike, they rigged it up as a dormitory for the arbitrationist workers. So interesting things going on around that part of the country, of the city, I mean. <coughs> and in the early part of the strike, the um, Harbour Board put up barricades. Very quickly, the unionists pulled those down, went on to the wharves, persuaded or uh, coerced those still working on the boats to stop. So from 24th October, all the loading and unloading of boats ceased. And it appears these actions were largely spontaneous, but um, the strikers were nevertheless very well organised. They had a very well organised picket system. They had a bicycle um, scouting system where all these chaps on bicycles went around finding out what was going on around town, whether the specials were coming in, no longer gorge, all this kind of thing. And the employers were deeply worried by this whole business and they went to the government asking that the regiment of artillery, which was the only permanent uh, military in Wellington, be used. Colonel Hurd, who was the chief of staff of this outfit, was not at all happy with the idea. He wanted the military to stay officially neutral, and he suggested instead they use the territorial structure in the countryside to recruit um, <coughs> farmers and rural workers to act as special constables. And this idea was taken up. Recruitment was very rapid. The specials were armed up with batons, and I th I'm not sure if, whether this was official or unofficial. A whole lot of them were also issued with revolvers, many of which never came back, apparently. Um, and they set off on by train and horseback to Wellington. It wasn't all plain sailing. The militant flax workers uh, made a habit of throwing stuff at the trains as they went past. 
and um, there were various ambushes in Nauranga Gorge where barbed wire was strung up and rocks were rolled down and so on. But Police Commissioner Cullen was very keen to use the specials to break the strike and um, he took a very activist role, although Colonel Hurd didn't approve of many of Cullen's tactics. For a start, they brought the specials in, in dribs and drabs into the town, which made them vulnerable to attack when they arrived, and they set them up in the post office and telegraph store, which was near to the railway station on the reclaimed land. 1,000 unionists on the morning of the 30th, the day after the specials arrived, charged in there and chased them out. So order was restored when um, near on the Wool Wharf nearby, the sailors from the warship HMS Psyche, which happened to be in town at the time, started parading around with fixed bayonets and displaying the machine guns of the ship prominently. Um, on the same day, Heard agreed that the he'd wanted to keep the army and the special separate, but he agreed that they had to be uh, put up at Buckle Street at the Mount Cook Barracks, Alexander Barracks up there. Meantime, a group of specials had done a mounted charge through Post Office Square, scattering women and children and so on. Uh, revolvers were fired, apparently, um, still debated as to who was firing them. The specials, of course, denied that they had anything to do with that. Um, apparently, it was due to the police, the regular police, leading the specials straight through the crowd instead of taking them to Buckle Street by one of the other streets. There was also an incident as the uh, foot specials, who were local um, businessmen, sporting types, students, shop clerks, etc. They were being enrolled at the town hall. One of them was chased by a group of strikers into Whitcomb and Tombs. Uh, there were a couple of regular police to try and protect them, but they only kept the crowd off because various of the shop assistants of Whitcomb and Tombs emerged carrying revolvers. And it was reported that at that time, the gunsmiths of Wellington had sold out of their revolvers. Uh, there was no like, gun licensing at that time, to my knowledge. One of the things you have to remember going on with all this is there were a lot of young blokes there having the time of their lives running around doing all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but yes, Heard maintained that what they should have done is concentrate the specials out in the hut or somewhere like that, bring them in in a big body. And that was what they did do in Christchurch at Addington and in Auckland at the Domain, got them together, trained them all up, then did their quick operations. They obviously had a lot of discipline problems with the specials in the early days in Wellington too. And the Maori land worker, accurately or not, claimed that most of the specials were drunk a lot of the time. Uh, what they did do once they were up at Buckle Street is they, the army took them down to Lyle Bay, trained them up in manoeuvres there, and their discipline improved as the strike went on. But Buckle Street, once the um, specials were going to, be, uh, going to be catered for up there, it was the uh, regiment blocked off both ends of Buckle Street, put soldiers with bayonets on each end and also set up a machine gun at each end. The Mount Cook at that time was a very working class area. The locals were not at all happy about these specials being catered there and they essentially besieged the area. But the soldiers with the bayonets and guns were ordered not to get involved if they could help it. The crowd actually generally respected this. A few soldiers were injured by rocks. But generally, they avoided attacking both the soldiers and what they called the Blue Police. The chant was, leave the Blue Police alone, go for the specials. The specials were the ones who were really hated in the place. 1,000 of them ended up um, garrisoned at the Drill Hall. There were some great issues with this because, of course, they produced a lot of horseshit and the city council employees supporting the strike refused to move it. 
They also refused to move a dead horse, which the um, specials had offered to donate to the zoo for the lions. So you can imagine it got a bit smelly up around there during this time. But there were several major riots in Buckle Street uh, on the 3rd and 4th of November. Um, revolver shots fired once again. Young uh, reporter Pat Lawler came rushing back to the Dominion where he worked saying, look, there's been revolver firing on both sides. The editor, consulting with the uh, police commissioner Cullen, said no, there was only revolver firing by the strikers, which is what the Dominion reported. The Sydney Morning Herald reported both sides, but there you go. Uh, many injuries, no deaths. The amazing thing about this whole exercise is no one got killed. Um, the strikers and their supporters, many of them just being the locals who were uh, resentful of what was going on, somebody's being yobbos having a good time, also besieged the Royal Tiger Hotel, which was the special's drinking spot, and smashed all the windows there two nights in a row, also attacked McParlin's Bakery, which had sold bread to the specials. People obviously learned which areas were safe to go to according to which side you supported. But the key battle, as you might call it this time, was what was known as the Battle of Featherston Street. And in this, on the 5th of November 1913, um, they wanted to ship some racehorses down for the New Zealand Cup. And horse racing was huge in those days. The um, Federation of Labour had actually agreed to get, let some of the horses through, but the strikers and generals said, no, nah, it's not happening. 800 specials left from Buckle Street to go all the way down to the wharves. And the other thing is, it was Wednesday afternoon, and in those days, we didn't have a weekend. We had Sunday off and a half holiday, and Wellington's half holiday was Wednesday afternoon. So that increased the number of people on the streets, and people started attacking the specials from Guzney Street down. And it developed into this running battle of road metal being thrown at the specials, char horses charging, reached a crescendo at Featherston Street. Also, the chaos was added to by tram drivers who were supporting the strike who were trying to run over the specials. And there was one gruesome incident where one of the horses did get hit. But despite the uh, violent struggle, or because of, the specials took the wharves. And that was the important thing about this date. They took control of the wharves. From there on, the waiting room, as I said earlier, was set up over the dormitory. And so very, uh, and Workers were brought on, scab workers, free labourers, depending on your point of view. They were billeted at the wharves themselves so they didn't have to cross the picket line. So despite the fact that the strike went on and had now been joined by the seamen, despite the fact the strike went on until in Wellington until mid-December, essentially once the wharves were taken, um, it was sort of the beginning of the end. Now, the... Employers Committee had very efficient systems for fundraising. They went round and door knocked on all the uh, businesses of the central city, got funds, etc. They also had the state organising catering in through the military at Buckle Street and so, and so on. The strikers had their own quite efficient system where they had what they called the Distress Committee, which was basically run by the woman. Um, Selena Anderson and Jane Donaldson, two activists, had a major role in this. And what um, they did, they were, operated out of the Socialist Hall in Manor Street. They kept a register of who needed what. They got food from sympathisers in the country, from people with gardens, from uh, Italian fishermen who donated fish. And then they kept a register of all this, distributed out to people. They had to keep everything very efficient because it was always in an outfit like there's lots of questioning as to who was doing what. One of the things that comes out of this is, as Melanie Noland pointed out, 
in her article in the Revolution book, the role of woman in the strike has been still, it still needs a lot more investigation. We know a lot about what all the blokes are up to, but the role of woman, and that goes for the countryside as well, where at least some areas it would have been like a um, practice run for the war where the woman had to run the farms, or some of the farms while the blokes are off hitting people. Um, so yeah, role of woman needs to be looked at more. Now, as we know, the strike was defeated, and most of my studies have been on the, the actual nuts and bolts of what went on. Um, I still really have to dig into more detail about what happened as to why they lost, but my thoughts at the moment go along these lines. One hand, government used massive um, coercive force, special constables, regular police, etc. Once they'd gained control of the wharves, um, they had they could get the whole thing operating again, and they set up arbitrationist unions. They didn't, while the the unions, the striking unions, referred to these as scabs, they set them up under the arbitration system. They're officially part of the unions, officially arbitration unions. Some of these guys in Wellington were locals. A lot of them were people brought in from the country, but they used the same tactic around the country. The militant unions were unable to get the moderate unions to come out. Most of the arbitration unions stayed working, even though a lot of them were donating money to the strike. But in the latter part of the strike, the Supreme Court came to a decision from a court case brought to it that it was illegal for unions to give money to other unions that were on strike. So unions doing this ran a great risk of um, being prosecuted again and their assets stripped, etc. One of the other factors as to why I think um, the employers and government won was that they had very clear set goals, which was essentially the destruction of the Red Feds, forcing the unions into the arbitration system. Whereas the unionists, their goal seems to have largely been survival as and to keep their federation going. But there was a variety of goals. Some thought that it was the revolution. Others were just sort of, um, as I say, trying to keep their unions in existence. By the end of it, it seemed to be a complete defeat for the unionists. Uh, the militants, such as Semple and Aggie, and I'm always using these terms, militant and moderate, as sort of broad terms. They can be argued about a lot. But uh, militants like Semple and Hickey were removed from running the UFL, the Federation of Labour. The most radical protesters, a lot, the Wobblies, people like Tom Barker in Auckland, uh, most of them skipped off to Australia. Barker made a name for himself there in opposition to the First World War. Um, nearly all the unions, unions ended up being arbitrationist unions. However, it was not quite a total defeat. The, un the employers and government had failed to destroy the Federation of Labour, which continued to exist, and peak union bodies continued on from there. The Federation of Labour morphed into the Alliance of Labour, which later became again the Federation of Labour. Um, unions remained in a strong position. Plus, the arbitration unions, including that at Waihe, were all basically taken over through over the next year or two by the Red Feds, by militant unionists who were basically the ones who ran the unions anyway and in the old days, so they retook these unions. One big change though through the strike was that many of the leaders who had regarded any sort of parliamentary aspect of the struggle as a minor detail of it, if anything important at all, but that the industrial struggle was the important thing, many of them now saw how powerful the coercive state was how limited their ability to do industrial change was. 
So people like Savage, Fraser, Semple all move towards more support for parliamentary uh, methods, which led to the formation of the Labour Party as an alliance between militant and moderate um, Labour groups. However, they weren't the only... Some people like Jim Roberts, the seafarers, maintained the industrial line on it, but it did change the whole sort of emphasis of um, what the union activists were emphasising. So, essentially, the 1913 strike was a defeat for the Labour movement, but not a complete defeat and something from which they rebuilt and went on. Uh, and I won't go into what's happened since. Some of it is rather tragic, in my opinion, but um, I will stop there. Um, I had set out a few little list of questions because I was thinking about the Great War, the First World War, which of course we've got these um, great series of um, commemorative events. I might, do I have time to just run through there? I haven't done any great study on this, but these are just thoughts from having looked at the strike as to what it tells or might ask us about the society that went into the First World War. It raises to me the question of was New Zealand so solidly imperialist and behind the war as is often portrayed? You will read things by veterans who come from country areas saying everyone was in favour of the war, we were all in favour, and that probably was in their neighbourhoods. But how was it in Buckle Street, um, you know, Mount Cook, people who'd been um, involved in these struggles? Did We know that many Red Feds did volunteer. Why they did is another question. Did they do it because um, they were suddenly swept up by patriotism? Was it a free trip to England that they had in mind? Or was it just an adventure or good pay? Um, and in those cases, we ended up with some unit that had Red Feds and... Uh, um, Massey's Cossacks in the same trench. Did the comradeship of the trenches overcome any sort of questions that had arisen from the past? And then again, what of those who stayed behind? How much of their um, militancy was retained? Um, we know that it was certainly was in certain areas, including places like Runanga, where you still had solid group with a majority of people in that small town were unionists, but what about in a place like Wellington, where you're just one among a scattered population. We know it split the labour movement to some extent. There's a, a little account of Pat Hickey walking along past some recruiter who's busy expounding to this group of people who are cheering, and Hickey writes in disgust to one of his mates, I could see the baton scars on the heads of these people who are cheering on the recruiting chap there. So, and the union movement did split between those who supported the war and those who didn't necessarily oppose the war, but definitely opposed to conscription and had some doubts about the war. In Hickey's case, he was totally opposed to conscription and to the war. One other question I have is in places like Wellington, how much did the repression that came in because of the war destroy this vibrant um, working class uh, militant culture that was going on? So, because we know that through the war, for example, there was a lot of censorship uh, and that the IWW and the Red Feds were constantly held up as the bogeymen, um, added to later by the Bolsheviks, who of course hadn't been heard of in 1913, but by 1918 were the new villains. 